Hi friends, this is episode 48 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hey everybody, thanks so much for coming back. You know, I am just absolutely honored to be on this journey with you. Who knew a little over two years ago, uh, starting out with a small group of people just trying to get to know the character of God, that it would grow so large and that there would even be a seating problem in the theater where we meet. But I just want to say thank you because many of you have not only joined us live, but many of you are joining us from far-flung places all across the U.S. I'm getting emails all around the world from places like Bangladesh, Philippines, Germany, Ukraine, and we are just delighted just to have you on this journey with us. Now, I've received several emails just in the past couple of weeks about some of you, you don't live close by, and you're wondering what are we talking about when we're talking about our discipleship plan called the 12 people you love. And I just want to let you know, if you want to know more about that, visit our website, my12people.com. That's M-Y-1-2-P-E-O-P-L-E.com, my12people.com, and you'll find out more about it. And those of you that live outside the U.S., don't worry. It comes in the Kindle format, and you can find it right there on the website so you can get it within seconds wherever you live. It's a journey that we're on to take the character of God and just to ask the question, if God is love, how are we as a church truly embodying what love is all about and letting that be the thing that attracts people to church instead of trying all these different type of manipulative methods to evangelize. So we invite you on that journey too. Today we're going to continue going into Christ's kingdom tales, and I can't wait for you to get into this one. This is about a great banquet, and what we see about God's character here by far is one of the most profound statements of God's character, and it really is the undoing of one of the greatest misunderstandings of God's character. So I can't wait for you to get into it. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to the Bible Lab. Are you guys ready? Here we go. Number one, the person sitting next to me, other than my spouse, is more wealthy than me. Oh, my word. This is bizarre. I'm seeing, I'm seeing about 55% yes. I'm seeing about 33% maybe, and the rest no. Wow. Maybe yes, maybe no. I don't even know what that means. I need to call in a statistician to help me out here. <laughs> now, if I wouldn't have put the parenthetical other than my spouse, that would have been fun. <laughs> Number two, I'd rather stay home than go to a fancy party. I'd rather stay home than go to a fancy party. Look at all of these very much of a hermit people I am seeing about. <laughs> 65% yes, and I'm seeing about 35%, no, about 30% no, and 5% maybe. So the majority of you don't want to go to fancy parties. Let me help you relax. Tonight's party will in no way be fancy. It's a game night, dominoes flying everywhere, and rook cards, you name it. So, Uno. So come on anyways, because it's not fancy in any way. It's pizza and root beer floats. Number three, heaven will not be crowded. Heaven will not be crowded. I'm seeing the majority of yes. I'm seeing about 70% yes. I'm seeing about 30% uh, are no's and maybes, and they are grumbling a lot. I see the yes card. You guys are sitting there nice and happy. The rest are, I don't know if you have a stupid question. We're going to talk about this today. And I think I know what the grumbling is. The grumbling is, well, God knows everything. He knows how much space we have to have. So he's going to build a, build a place that has plenty of space. I don't want to be too close to neighbors. I don't like apartment living. I don't want to be this. I don't want to be on top of each other for eternity. Yeah. <sighs> 
we should come back to this statement at the end of our discussion today. Because I'm not telling you that the majority of you are wrong. I'm just saying you'd probably put a different card up had you known where we're going. Number four, only Christians will go to heaven. Ah, look at this. I am seeing about 95% no. And I'm seeing, you know, I, there is maybe one maybe card out there. And I'm seeing the rest are yes cards, but very few yes cards. Now, you're saying that because you know you're supposed to say it, <laughs> right? No, there will be people there other than Christians. If I were to go through and change that to say Buddhists will be in heaven, Muslims will be in heaven, Hindus will be in heaven, we'd have quite a discussion, wouldn't we? Good, because we're going to have that discussion today. <laughs> Number five, I left off one. Atheists will be in heaven. Number five, people who don't know God will be in heaven. Yes or no? People who don't know God will be in heaven. Okay, the majority of you are saying yes. Larry is advanced in technology. He raises phone that has a picture of a maybe card. <laughs> You're the hippest guy here, Larry. Wow. So the majority, yes. And then it looks like an even split between no's and maybe's. And we've answered that because we know we're supposed to answer that way. But we're going to talk today about who gets to go to heaven. Because the challenge is most of you are here in church because you want to go to heaven. Some people said no. The rest of the people say, you're a liar. Be quiet. We know what we're supposed to say, but our practice says something altogether different. And we're going to talk about that today because Jesus talked about that in his day. And so to get us there, I want to ask you a question because we're going to talk about a great banquet. And so to start us out, I want to get us into the banquet mood. And I want to ask, what's the most exclusive banquet or restaurant you've ever gone to? Most exclusive restaurant or banquet you've ever gone to? Who's going to start us out? Exclusive restaurant or banquet you've ever gone to? Michael. Several years ago, Barbara and I went to Paris and stayed in a very nice hotel, L'Hotel Balzac. And then we went, to, we went down and talked to the concierge in the hotel and said, we want to go to a very nice restaurant. So we went to the restaurant. And one time in my life, I spoke French. And if you don't use it all the time, you forget it. But anyway. I could understand most of what they were saying, and I said to her, we were sitting in the restaurant, they know we are Americans. And she says, why? I said, because Americans come to a restaurant, they order, they eat, they pay their bill, and they leave. These Parisians, notice the people around the room, how they're taking their time, mm -hmm. and they'll be here for two or three hours. Yeah, yeah. Eat to live or live to eat is always the... Always the question. I couldn't afford to ever go back. You couldn't afford to go back? No, no, not at all. There's a special restaurant that many people have never heard of in Disneyland. Have you ever heard of Club 33? Yeah, many of you have. How many of you have not heard of Club 33? Raise your hand. It's okay. Whoa, okay, the majority of you have not. So Club 33 uh, used to have a different entrance. If you uh, know Disneyland and you, and you know the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, the exit comes out, and right near the exit, there's the place where you enter or make your reservations for the Blue Bayou restaurant, which most people know about because when you're first getting on the boat and going on your ride in the Pirates of the Caribbean, you see on the right people eating. And you think, boy, I'd love to do that, but that's so expensive. Well, just wait, because the next door down, because that's, that was door number 32, is the Blue Bayou. Right next to it, without any signs, but in really fancy letters, it used to be there. They've moved it down just a ways and made a nicer entrance. But there was a door with a very fancy 33, uh, letting you know this is door 33. And it was a special place that Walt Disney designed from the very beginning of Disneyland for his corporate sponsors, 
uh, dignitaries. It was an invitation-only restaurant, one of the most exclusive restaurants in the world. And people would be able to go there the only way that you can eat there. And some people in this community I've talked to have actually eaten there. And the only way that you can is you are in some way related to or close enough friends with one of the corporate sponsors or some of these dignitaries. And it's a very, very special place. Uh, without drinks, it's $150 per person. Yes. And so it's a very, very exclusive place. Um, since the very beginning, Walt Disney tried to do several things. First of all, he tried to um, make sure that customer service was unlike any other. And so he installed microphones into the chandeliers above the table. The problem is when you have dignitaries and corporate people, there are things talked about that you don't want your wait staff to hear. And the corporate uh, individuals, that the guests there, started getting suspicious when they hadn't asked anyone for salt or that their steak was not cooked correctly and the wait staff was coming out and taking care of their needs. <laughs> and once it was exposed, those microphones had to go away really, really quick. <laughs> exactly. One of the most exclusive restaurants. Anybody else? Uh, is anyone here eaten at Club 33? You have. Anybody else? Dave, you guys have? Wow. Anybody else? Oh, my word. Sarah and Ann. All right. We're going to talk. We're going to talk because I need insider info. Plus, I need an invitation. Good. All right. Back here. So when I uh, was first dating my wife, it was over Skype for about nine months. And uh, I come from a family of two, my brother and I and my parents. And so finally, when it was time to make the trip to Ecuador uh, in Rio Bamba, uh, it was a long trip. It was three hours from the airport. And I went inside uh, my future wife's house. And in this very small room were 10 of her brothers and sisters and her 87-year-old uh, mother. And it was a very traditional society. I was the gringo outsider. Uh, and I felt so privileged uh, that they then, after they met me, allowed me to sit around their dinner table and mm. have dinner with them. It mm. was a wonderful experience. Oh, that is awesome. That is awesome. Very cool. Now, in Jesus' day, there was a banquet that everyone talked about. It was known as the Great Banquet, if we translate it into English. And this Great Banquet had been spoken about for over 700 years by the time Christ came. It was a banquet that all Jews dreamt of. And in this banquet, uh, several things were supposed to happen depending on what scripture you read. And so we're going to talk about the great banquet, but before we get to what the actual belief was about this banquet, I want us to open up scripture, open up your Bibles or your Bible apps, or look up at the screen at Luke 14, and we're going to start with verse 12, and we're going to go through verse 24. It starts out like this, then Jesus said to his hosts, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. I'm going to stop right here for a second because this is an okay translation, but the word do not means do not habitually. In other words, it's okay to, so some of you would be like, okay, sorry, mom, you're going to come over for lunch, but the Bible says... The word here means do not make a habit of only inviting these people. So it's okay to invite these people, just don't make a habit of these are the only people you invite. It says if you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of righteousness. Verse 15, then one of those at the table with him heard this. He said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, 
and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Can I hear an amen from Jordy and Emily? <laughs> Verse 21, the servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out into the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. So what's going on? Why would Jesus tell this parable? You have to understand what was going through the minds of the people when Jesus told it, or you miss a ton of things in the telling of the story. Now, we've gone through Matthew 22's version of this. It was told to a different crowd for a different reason. That's why it has different details. In this one, there are several things that Jesus needs to use the same story to actually tell a different point of God's character. Now, this conversation started 700 years earlier, and I'm going to quickly go through the background so that we as a community can have the conversation, okay? But I want you to understand the culture, the context, and the language before we start having a conversation. So I'm going to race through this, so you might have to listen to the recording next week in order to catch all of it. First of all, when Jesus tells this parable of the great banquet, he participates in a conversation that had begun 700 years earlier. The setting is the messianic banquet. It's known as the fagetai arton, literally a place to eat food or bread. It's a great banquet, very famous. The expectations, those around the table, eating with Jesus, would expect Jesus to say something such as, when, uh, when the man says, oh, wouldn't it be great to be sitting at that banquet? He would have expected Jesus to give the common reply. There was a set, memorized reply that all devout Jews would give. So they expected him to reply, oh, that we might keep the law in a precise fashion so that when the great day comes, we will be counted worthy to sit with the Messiah and all true believers at his banquet. And then the reclining guest would have nodded approvingly and thought to themselves, fine, okay, he passed that exam. Now let's move on to the next topic. But Jesus totally messes up the entire dinner because he goes against the traditional response. And he says, oh, we'll, we'll have a conversation here. We're not going to move from this topic because you guys don't understand the character of God. Jesus responds with a very different view of the Messianic banquet at the end times from the views current in the community. We sit here today and, and we know God's character is love and that his grace knows no bounds and he invites all people, whether they're perfect or not, he invites them to sit at his banquet. We know that, but the people in Jesus' day did not believe that. They believed Jews only will sit at that great banquet table when the Messiah truly comes. 700 years before Christ is having this conversation around a table, things began. In Isaiah 25, verse 6 to 9, God inspires Isaiah to write these words that started the whole belief in this great banquet. It's interesting to see what Isaiah writes and how it gets twisted. Isaiah 25, 6 to 9 says this, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. It's not just the Jews, it's everyone on the earth. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, I'm sure that uh, translates to veggie meat, and the finest of Welches. <laughs> on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. That was the beginning 
of the theology of the great banquet. Who's invited? All peoples. Something happens though. 200 years before Christ, give or take a few years, the most recent changes began taking place. I'm going to start with the one that was closest to the time of Christ and move backwards. Is that okay? So closest to the time of Christ, um, an Aramaic translation of Scripture began to emerge. It's called the Targum. It was an expanded version, much like today we have the Living Bible or the Message version. And here's what the Targum does to Isaiah's vision of the great banquet. So it's the same thing. It's the same text. They just try to expound and let you know what Isaiah really meant. And this is how they interpret it. Quote, Yahweh of hosts will make for all the peoples in this mountain a meal. And although they suppose it is an honor, it will be a shame for them. And great plagues, plagues from which they will be unable to escape, plagues whereby they will come to their end. So, oh yeah, everyone's invited. You can check in, but you're not going to check out. If you're not a Jew, a devout Jew, who keeps all the laws, all the rules, if you're not devout, if you are not very careful about how you live your faith, oh, you'll be invited, but it's a trick and it's a trap. In the second century BC, a document emerged calling, uh, that was called the Book of Enoch. Many of you have heard of that before. The Book of Enoch. The book speaks of a great banquet with the Messiah and affirms that the Gentiles will be included. But the angel of death will be present and will use his sword to destroy those Gentiles. The banquet hall will run with blood and the believers will be obliged to wade through the gore to reach the banquet hall where they sit down with the Messiah. <laughs> Anybody hungry? It's going to be a small plate banquet. Around the same time, another voice emerged from the Qumran community, which wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. The community was composed of pious Jews, presumably, presumably of the Essene branch of Judaism, and one of its scrolls, called the Messianic Rule, discusses this famous banquet. The Qumran community was certain that no Gentiles would be present. So see, it's another change. Only pious Jews who observed the law would be allowed to attend. And their text says this, And then the Messiah of Israel shall come, and the chiefs of the clans of Israel shall sit before him, each in the order of his dignity, according to his place in their camps and marches. And earlier in the same scroll, the text affirms that no one can attend the banquet who is smitten in the flesh, or paralyzed in his feet or hands, or lame, or blind, or deaf, or dumb, or smitten in his flesh with a visible blemish. None of that. And then along comes Jesus. And they say, oh, might we be these faithful, pious, law-keeping Jews on that day when the Messiah comes and throws his great banquet. And Jesus says, I'm about to make just about every single person in this room very angry with me. Let's go. And he tells a story. Now go back and look at the parable he tells. There were people invited who made excuses. Who does he send them to go get? The outsiders. The non-Jews. The people who are crippled, lame, poor, smitten in the flesh, all the people that the church of the day said none of these people will ever get in the door. They're excluded because they're a mess. Who does the nobleman invite? The people who are a mess. And not only the people local, because said go to the street corners and the alleyways, who lives on street corners and alleyways? It's two groups of people. It was the same in Jesus' day. The prostitutes and the homeless. That's who he says invite them in. Then the servant says what you've done has been accomplished, but there's, there's a problem. 
What's the problem? Space. Space is a problem. It's not the same space problem we're having, okay, because we have no more room here. Uh, the problem is there's still room. What's God's greatest concern? Heaven will not be overcrowded. Do you realize God's greatest concern is that there will be room for one more in heaven that's not there? Let's go back to our beginning statements. Will heaven be crowded? If God has his way, you bet it will. Heaven will be so overcrowded if God has his way. So let's take a step back and let's take a look at what in the world does this mean for us today. And maybe Sharon, you can start us out here. Oh, I just want to say that other other times when I've read this, I have not understood why these people weren't told way ahead of time that they were supposed to come into a banquet. Which, um, which people? But the Help fact me understand. Is which, which people were not told ahead the of time? The people who made excuses. Oh, see, that's our Western mindset. Yeah, but the fact is we did do some research, and they, they had been invited. They had accepted yes. the invitation. Yes. And then they changed their minds. Yes. So the question is, thank you for doing the research. This is exactly the behavior we're looking for, teacher's pet, today. Um, <laughs> do a little research. I say it every Wednesday. I say it every Wednesday on the Wednesday warm-up. The reality is, in the day of Christ, you would get two invitations. The first invitation was save the date. You would respond, I can come. I will save the date. I can't wait to help you celebrate this marriage ceremony or this feast or whatever it is that's going on. So they had already committed to being there. Then you would receive a second invitation, which was basically the servant saying, food's ready, y'all come eat. Matthew takes it a step farther in, in that one where uh, the king even uh, stoops so low as to tell you what's on the menu to try to entice you to come. Do you realize what type of buffet this is? And so they had already committed. But then the question is, Sharon, what, what did the excuse tell the nobleman? Other than I don't want to come. I'm sorry, here's the microphone. I've decided that your invitation is not nearly as important as the things that I could do. But each one of the excuses is stupid because you don't buy something without looking at it. You don't buy oxen without seeing if they can work. So it's a lie. Yeah. That's still Western mindset. Can I take you into the Eastern mindset here? Because what commentators say is that these individuals are not making an excuse because they think they're more important. These people are intentionally trying to shut down the party. They've gotten together and said, let's all go. We're leaving. There is no party without us. And we're going to shut down the party because we don't agree with the nobleman. We are going to intentionally sabotage this banquet. That's what commentators say, that the Eastern mindset, as they read it, they're greatly offended, not because the person says I'm more important, but because the person says, I have the power to shut your party down. It's huge, very offensive. Pastor Roy, I'm struggling with the fact that I'm hearing invitations here. Yes. And still not everybody's accepting the invitation. Yeah. So does that mean that heaven's going to be crowded because there's a lot of invitations? Or does it mean that it's not going to be crowded because people aren't accepting them? Ah, so you're asking the right question. You're asking the absolute correct question. Who's going to accept? In Jesus' story, who did accept? Because you have to understand something. I already mentioned that this first group. This is a low-hanging fruit. These are the people that you see need help. Most church outreach programs reach this first invitational group of people on the street corners and the alleyways. We look at outreach as reaching to the people that are 0.5% of the population that need food and need to get off drugs and need to get their lives turned around. We focus most of our outreach attention on this 0.5% of the population. 
In Jesus' story, he says, yeah, 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 I care about them. And that's the low-hanging fruit. That's why that's our outreach is that's the low-hanging fruit. It's easy to target and identify. When the servant comes back and says, I've done what you said, but now there's still more room, then Jesus says, okay, here's my second target group. I want you to go, and some of your translations say, to the countryside, the country lanes. Um, the literal translation here, it's an idiom. It says, look behind the hedge. What does that mean? The idiom meant go beyond our nation's border. You would have a hedge or a fence that marked where the kingship ended. And if you were on the other side and a servant came to you and said, by the way, this nobleman or this king is inviting you to a feast, you would say, king who? Because you do not know him. You are not under him. You have no relationship because you are not part of his kingdom. And Jesus says, you guys have missed it for the last couple of hundred years and that's why I'm here, to reveal God's character, that you're saying that only your church members are going to heaven, and I'm telling you, people who will say, God who, are the people that I will take to heaven. It also says, Jesus uses this word, we translate as compel. The nobleman says, in Jesus' parable, go to these people beyond our borders and compel them to come. The literal translation is grab them by the hand and drag them kicking and screaming. <laughs> Compel them means you have no choice. I am dragging you to this feast. Jesus said that. Is that, is that crazy or what? That Jesus would say, I don't care if they want to come or not. Grab them by the hand and compel them. Don't give them an option. Say, he wants you there. Hello. Okay. Uh, my question is, uh, so that means that even if I don't believe in Jesus, who is the only way to heaven, I'll be in heaven practicing whatever religion I believe? Only if you believe the words of Jesus. That's what I, my point, yeah. So, only if you believe the words of Jesus can you believe that people who don't know Jesus will be in heaven. There's no way around it. Jesus himself said it. They're the red letters. Jesus himself said it. So we can't say, well, this person, you know, Paul, he had his own, his own agenda and his own understanding of, of God. And because he came from, no, Jesus himself, who came from heaven, said people who do not even know the name of Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life will be compelled, dragged by the hand to come to the great banquet, and that's very difficult for us today. If this is easy for you to swallow today, you're not thinking about what I just said. This is very, very difficult to swallow. Marilyn. I'm sorry, over here and then Marilyn. Yes. Hello? Okay. Go for it. I am, I'm being Moses for Aaron, another Aaron. David moved away, but someone else was sharing John 16. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen, yeah. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say before I handed this phone <laughs> with that text, C.S. Lewis makes a beautiful illustration of that, of this pagan worshiper in Aslan, the lion, mm -hmm. uh, brings him into heaven, and the, the saved are angry. Why is he here? He never heard your voice, and he said he was never given my voice, but that which he believed in, he did with all of his heart. And I think the message comes to us. I have friends that have been to Club 33. I have friends that, a little side from what you know, with the invitation, they also have room for a few people, but it is by invitation only that have been on this waiting list and have moved up and moved up one guy finally made, got the invitation, and I think we get in our Western mindset of, well, how stupid, you're finally invited, why won't you be there? I belong to an exclusive club on Facebook 
uh, that is a result of the Black Panther. And I wish all of you could be there. I think a few people in here I know are members of this club, and it was a kind of satire mm -hmm. on Adventism. Mm -hmm. And the satire was, you know, okay, here's this kingdom. Well, that was wrong, so they changed the name to a more veggie name mm -hmm. of group of people, and you have to be invited to be in this. Last night, I almost sent you a text because the question was similar to this. It was on communion, but it was a serious question. Mm -hmm. How, you know, do we practice an open communion? Well, unless you believe in Christ, you should not partake. Why would you partake of something that you don't believe in? And there were good Adventists on this site last night saying, mm -hmm. well, you know, what about the thief on the cross? And some were saying, how do you know that he wasn't baptized before? I can't imagine that Christ really invited him because he had to show the sign of baptism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was like, really? <laughs> yeah. You're, you're getting into a great point because we all want to in some way quantify why I'm saved and the unsaved are not saved. And who am I supposed to go reach because they're unsaved and I'm in a saving relationship. And so we start to parse out how can I quantify that I'm saved and they're not so we know who our target is. There's a great challenge here. Because we're assuming something that's non-biblical. We're assuming that God does not want everyone in heaven, number one. We're assuming that the devil is the one who chooses who goes with him and who doesn't because he works on them. And we're not as assuming what God says, which is, it's you who gets to decide who goes to heaven or not. Because it's your choice whether you want to go or not. Because you can be compelled and be dragged along kicking and screaming, and you're strong enough. You can, you can fight and get away and go your own direction. But it's your choice. God's choice is that everyone will be in heaven. Satan's choice is that no one will go to heaven. And it's your choice that decides whether you go to heaven or not. That's biblical. I've got right here, and then I want to go over here. Uh, I, I think you did just answer my question about that word compel. Yes. I, I was struggling with what you said earlier. It's my understanding that in the Inquisition, that is the verse they used mm -hmm. to coerce people into the church and to mm -hmm. compromise their convictions. Mm -hmm. and so I, I, it seems there must be some other translation of the word. Mm -hmm. What you have to do, Marilyn, thank you, is you have to look at what does all the Bible say about a topic before you say the Bible says this on a topic. So you can take that one verse and say, yes, if we compel people by force to become part of the church, that's biblical. But that's not what Jesus is calling. We can even see this in this verse. Jesus is not calling to compel people to become Jews, which was the church of the day. So you're not compelling people to join the church. You're compelling people to go to heaven. You understand the difference because it's huge. Because there's many people even sitting here today who even though you've chosen church, you're not choosing heaven yet. And you know it in your heart and that's why you're here every week because you're like, I've got, I've, got to, I've got to have something more in my relationship than just church. Because church still leaves me feeling hollow. So what is it that we are called to compel? As servants of the master, what are we called to compel people to? And if that compelling is to have a relationship with God, and it just happens to be a program at church, that's good. But you're not dragging people to say, only if you're a Seventh-day Adventist will you be part of those who are saved during the second coming or whenever Jesus comes. Okay? There's a joke, many of you have heard it, that when Jesus uh, first has everyone in heaven, he's given a big heavenly tour, it comes up to a great big wall, huge wall, you can't scale it. It's not a really big block, but it is a block that's fenced off. And the people ask, Jesus, what's, what's in there? And Jesus says, shh, 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 that's where we keep the Adventists. They don't think there's anybody else here. <laughs> so keep it down. Yes, sir compelling yes. uh, there's going to be millions of people they're going to find themselves in heaven mm -hmm. they never heard a word of the word jesus they never seen the bible so they they resurrect and they're compelled in a sense they, they they're there in heaven without even knowing they're yes. without even asking themselves to be there 
Yes. Uh, that's why in Zechariah, you know, it says that uh, people will ask, where did you get those, those wounds in your hands and feet? And Jesus will answer them, it was done in the house of my friends. Mm. So that shows that there's a lot of people that, that, that uh, didn't know about the plan of salvation. But, yeah. it's, but it's still, Jesus died for them. Yes. Uh, people that lived, uh, let's say, uh, uh, in the Amazon jungle, in indigenous people, mm-hmm. or thousands of years, you know, and uh, never had a chance to, to hear the gospel. But yet, Jesus died for them, and each of us will be judged according to the light we received. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's really interesting. I, I love your viewpoint because it does point out something. Why is it? that we have a hard time thinking that there will be people in heaven who say, where am I? It's because of your view of the character of God. And the character of God is that you earned it. It's transactional. Your relationship was necessary in order to go to heaven. And because of that, because you have this non-theological basis, it's all traditional, that the only way that you're ever going to make it to heaven is by earning it, in some way. I did this and so I'm savable. It's unfathomable that there will be people there looking around saying, what is this? And at the same time in our minds, this is what we're saying about God. God, these people don't understand you. We only have eternity. How will they ever learn about you? It's, it, it does not make sense to me that we don't give God the almighty credit that he can train people at any stage of their life, even the afterlife. And that's not based on my public opinion. That's based on theology of what Jesus just said. Let's go here. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to comment. Sorry, one more time. Uh, Purple. Comment also. Uh, that White says that the natives in the jungle that have never heard the name of Jesus will be saved because they've lived up to the light that they have been given. Mm-hmm. And might I just comment about compel? Yes. I think compel refers to because you live a life that is so close to Christ, you compel others to know Christ. Mm-hmm. It's not that you go and twist their arm, mm-hmm. but they are compelled by the life that Christians live that mm-hmm. they too want that same life. Yeah. I'm in, a, I'm in a wealthy community here. So anybody here own a BMW? Okay, uh, do, do you find it difficult to share with people why you enjoy the ultimate driving experience? <laughs> do you feel like, ah, oh, I, I don't feel like it, but I've got to share with at least three people today what the 7 Series means to me. <laughs> there is a no way that you think that way. You cannot wait to tell about it, and you make everyone around us say, I'm going to save up my money because I want the ultimate driving experience too. What we have is the ultimate spiritual experience. It is, it is not difficult for me to share what God has done for me because I have the ultimate experience now that I didn't have before when I was driving around my old clunker life. The second thing I'd like to say, based upon your comment, is this. Um, I'm, I'm going to come back to that. I'm going to, I, I don't want to take it. Go ahead. You're kind of getting where I was going with it. I felt strongly about this topic and I've talked about it with a lot of people. And the one question that I get hung up on is that they ask, what's the point of outreach? Why did Jesus say to go to all of the nations? Um, You know, if people will say, well, if um, they don't need to hear about God, then you're giving them the choice. And then what if they say no? So is it better that they just live in dark? but that general topic, I can see where you're going with the, you know, wanting to share. That's exactly where I was going, and, and I stopped, and I'm glad I did, because I, I, wanted, I wanted you to take the first part. The second part, that's the next step of what you just said, is this. What about those who have been presented the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they've proven to people, I am correct, I have the correct theology. Look, this is defendable. If you agree with it, you, you agree with truth. If you disagree, you are walking away consciously from truth. I compelled them and they pulled their hand away. We have to allow ourselves to look at what Christ said to understand, even though someone may have heard about Christ, it doesn't mean that was the best person to share it with them. 
And even though the person did their best job, because we talk about indigenous tribes, and we're okay because those are encapsulated. There's no way. They've never heard about Jesus. But what about groups who have heard about Jesus in a very poor way? What about people who have heard about Jesus, but the character that was described to them is a very transactional God that says, you have to do this or I'm going to burn you in hell forever. And when the people hear that, they say, I'm kind of afraid of that guy. No, thanks. I, I think I'm okay. I don't want to be part of that bloodthirsty tyrant God who burns people forever in hell. Perhaps there are groups of people who have been presented Christ, but the way that it's been presented to them is less than truthful when it is aligned with the character of what the Bible really says about God. So we can't just say, well, you heard about Jesus and it was your choice and you walked away, so God's going to say, all right, I'm going to fry you. It doesn't fit the character of God. So perhaps people have heard about Christ, but they were never part of a community like this that says, but what is the true nature of God? And because of that, even though they've heard the gospel truth, it has not become relevant to them in a non-transactional loving way. Those people also have the opportunity to be compelled to come because God says, look, 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 I understand the brochure they tried, but it was a bunch of monsters on that brochure, and I'm not a beast. I'm a savior. And so you may not have been compelled by the beast, but I want you to understand I'm not beastly. And so let me have another chance for all eternity to express to you who I really am. So, so if um, we're talking about a non-transactional type of love here. How does a verse like John 14, 15 come into play where it says, if you love me, keep my commandments? Yes. Who's he talking to? Because we always have to look at everything in context. Who's he talking to? Uh, His disciples. You're absolutely correct. So, are there layers of responsibility based on what you know? Yes. Yeah. God doesn't call all of us and then say, okay, good, you're in the club, now just relax. Once saved, always saved. Right? We don't believe in that. We don't believe once saved, always saved, because that's not a relationship. It's not once married, always married, and then you move off to Florida and say, I'm going to go have fun. You have fun here in California. It's a growing relationship that has responsibilities. And so, yes, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. But what did he say just a few verses before that? The greatest commandment is this. <laughs> to love. By this will all men know you're different. You're connected to me if you share my number one physical trait. I'm recognizable world round by this. I will love and I will keep on loving regardless of how you respond. And all my followers will be known by how they love. This is a really difficult topic, and we're going to have to close it down here. I apologize for those who still have comments. But we have to rewrite in our mind what we've, what we've repeated over and over again as we've grown up, that am I doing enough so that I get to go to heaven? Are you here? You've done enough. You've accepted the invitation. You said, I want to go. I want to feast with my Lord and my King. So you've made the first step. We're going to talk in the coming weeks of what Jesus says in other parables about other expectations beyond that. But you've accepted the invitation. But the number one thing you have to understand today is God's greatest fear. We started out talking about Walt Disney Club 33. I want to tell you this. Opening day, 1955. Anybody, what's anybody here at opening day, Disneyland? First day? Dr. Horner was there. You were like two your wife and two kids. Opening day. Opening day at Disneyland. Walt Disney printed 11,000 uh, tickets and sent them out to the corporate uh, sponsors, dignitaries, and the press. A fledgling news channel called ABC, just starting out, had made a deal with Disney. He would give them full rights to come and film opening day. And in exchange, uh, they would help him produce the wonderful world of Disney television program. Walt Disney, the night before, they had just finished pouring in the wee hours in the morning, pouring that asphalt as you come into Main Street. He's up all night, and he's walking the sidewalks. 
Do you know what his number one fear was? It would be an empty park, and the cameras would capture a park with nobody in it. Little did he know that people were <laughs> counterfeiting those tickets. Another enterprising guy had a ladder at backstage, back in one of the fences, and he was charging people $11 a piece to get in. <laughs> the official count that day was over 27,000 people. It was crowded. Ladies' heels were sinking into the still soft asphalt, ladies walking out of their high heels. But that didn't concern Walt Disney a bit. His number one concern was, would my park be full? It's hard for us to imagine today going to Disneyland and it not being overcrowded, right? We look for days in the calendar. When will nobody be there? And we go and we're like, no, everyone's here. Well, Disney's greatest fear was that his park would be empty. God's greatest fear is the same, that heaven will not only be empty, but heaven will have room for one more, and they're not there. That's the character of God. Oh man, isn't that the best news ever? God is not claustrophobic. In fact, he's the exact opposite. I can't wait to spend time with him face to face, and I know you can't either. Now, while we're waiting for that reunion, I invite you to continue getting to know God better by understanding his kingdom tales, especially in the next episode when we talk about who's your neighbor and exactly who God sees as your neighbor and what makes the best neighbor. Hope to see you then. Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats in the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at Programs are recorded each Saturday at 10.30 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.